We are doing a series where we're walking through the book of James. We're just going through it verse by verse, taking our time. This is our series for all year. And so uh, for my, when I'm preaching in chapel, we have others who speak in chapel as well. But today we're in James chapter 1, and we're just going to zoom in on verses 26 and 27. 26 and 27, probably part of a larger segment of Scripture going from 19 to 27, talking about the fact of being doers of the Word, not just hearers only. But I wanted to pause and zoom in on verses 26 and 27 today. 26 and 27, I believe, talks about the nature of genuine versus fake religion. You know, oftentimes, even when we hear the word religion, we react negatively. At least that was my impression. So I did a scientific survey on Twitter (laughs) and put the survey poll out to see, does religion strike you, even in James 1, 26 and 27, as positive, negative, or neutral? And the results of that was that 71%, or that 41% of you had a negative reaction to the word religion, that 22% had a positive reaction to the word religion, and that 37% had a neutral reaction to the word religion. So what I want to start with when we talk about genuine versus fake religion is to understand that religion in this context, as James is talking about it, he, he's not talking about ritualistic practices. He's talking about the things that are acceptable to God, the things that please God. And so we're talking about genuine faith versus a fake faith. So if you're in the room and you're wondering, do I really have the real thing? Today, you're going to get three tests. You're going to get three ways you can measure whether you have genuine faith versus whether you have a fake or a false faith. You're going to be able to also test your maturity. James writes so that we would become steadfast in our faith and have steadfast faith for trying times so that we could be mature followers of Christ. So if you want to test your maturity, if you want to test your faith, you have three tests in our text today. In the text, it's going to talk about the first test, which is a person who has genuine faith will control the tongue. The second test is a person who has genuine faith will care for the afflicted. And the third test is a person who has genuine faith will remain unstained from the world. Those are our three tests. Now, let me start it off in this way. You want to figure out if something's real or if something's fake. This week, here on campus, we actually have had some practice and experience doing this. We received in the mail a fake check. I actually have a photo of it for you. Now, none of the numbers are right, so you don't have to worry about trying to capture anything down. This is a fake check. This is not what a Cedarville University check looks like. And a Cedarville University check, if you've ever looked at the signatures, are not signed by Paul Dixon. (laughs) He was the president here from 1978 to 2003. He's in Florida right now, or Tennessee one. He's not signing our checks, but somebody made a fake check and sent it to the bank. And do you know that one of the checks actually got through the bank? Somebody had to determine whether this was a real check or a fake check. You can get the check off the screen now so that they don't capture all the numbers or anything like that. I don't want you guys to try a fake check. So genuine versus fake. It happens with IDs. It happens with money. But there's also times where things are not always what they seem. Let me tell you a story. I was about your age. I had a black Camaro, loved my black Camaro. It had tinted windows, it had chrome rims. I had two 12-inch woofers in the back. I could bounce a quarter about six inches off the top of the T-tops. Yeah, I thought it was cool. I don't, you're probably sitting there thinking, yeah, that's not cool. But anyway, that's okay. I, I, when I go deaf, when I get older because of those 12-inch speakers, I'm gonna actually buy another black Camaro with 12-inch speakers and I'll be deaf so it won't matter. And I can just play my music loud and have fun with it, right? So I decided though, that I lived in the country. 
And where I lived in the country, the weekend thing to do was to go mud riding. Anybody in here ever been mud riding? Do you know what I'm talking about? There, there are, most of you have no clue what I'm talking There are a handful of us that are country enough to have gone out and sought bad roads with mud that was deep enough that you would sling it up under the car as you were going through it. You would slide through this mud. Mud would come up over the side of the vehicle. And if you were any good, mud would come up over the windshield to the top of the car and you would have clumps of mud on the hood of the vehicle by the time you were finished. It was just a joyous experience. I love mud riding. But I had a Camaro. They don't do real well in the mud. So in my mind, I began to develop this envy of four-wheel drive trucks. Now, I had a car. The car was great. I loved my car, but I wanted a truck. I didn't need two vehicles. I'm one person. I can't drive two cars at one time. But I decided I had to have a truck. So I began scouring the papers and looking. And the problem was I didn't have enough money to go buy a truck. So I wanted something I shouldn't have wanted, and I didn't have enough money to buy it. So I kept looking, and I kept looking, and finally I found it. It was a 1988 GMC. It was four-wheel drive, and it was only $3,000, which is about half the sticker price that this truck was supposed to be. I just knew this was it. In fact, I even remember in my own mind twisting scripture some to explain in my own mind how this was it. Seek first the kingdom of God, and he'll grant you the desires of your heart, right? I only focused on the second half of that verse, not the first half of that verse, but... You understand how we do that in our own minds when we have this desire for something. Even if we know it's not good, we're going to go get it anyway. So I went and I checked this truck out. This truck had chrome rims on it. It had tires that were offset, which meant it would sling a lot of mud on the outside of the car. I thought that was really cool. It was four by four, and that was the primary thing that it had to be. It was blue. It had a bunch of dents in it, which I just called character. It's okay. And then I I drove the truck. I'll be honest with you. I didn't really care if the truck ran or not. I mean, I... It was $3,000. It was four-wheel drive. It was all I could afford. It was over. I was done, okay? I took cash. I handed the guy cash. I went with the guy to the bank where he handed the cash to the bank to give me the title. I get in the truck. I begin driving my four-wheel drive truck home. As I'm driving this truck home, I hear a sound. I wish I could make the sound. I I don't think I can make it. The sound was the sound of a rod being thrown in the motor and the motor blowing up. The smell was the smell of burning stuff. (laughs) The view was smoke rising out of the hood in all directions. I, I just remember being deflated as the truck, I didn't really pull to the side of the road, I more kind of drifted to the side of the road because there was no power really left. As we towed the truck back and we took it to a friend of mine, this guy that went to our church that had invested in me, and he had a, he had a garage. We took it and we put it in the middle of the two-stall garage, dead set in the middle, and he looked at it and he said to me, you got a blown motor. I spent $3,000 on a truck with a blown motor. And when we took it apart, we took off the, the head gaskets and we looked at it. This guy had taken machine oil and had stuffed machine oil into the motor so that the motor would run long enough so that somebody could buy it and get it away from his house so that it would then blow up on somebody else because he had to get out from under his debt that he owed the bank. Now, my dad and this other guy were furious. I actually kind of knew I should have never bought the truck in the first place. And so this truck was, was one of my life lessons of if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Not everything is what it seems. I have a picture for the truck for you. So put it up on the screen. That's my truck. 
I replaced about every part in that truck. Down at that garage, we replaced the motor. A couple thousand dollars later and a whole lot of time, we replaced the transmission. We replaced the front drive axles. We replaced the alternator. We replaced just about everything. I have a minor in auto mechanics from that truck. School of Hard Knocks. There's the other. Yeah, you can see. I was a country boy. No fear in the Tasmanian devil. You can see the Camaro up in front too. But okay. Anyway, that's, that was my lesson. I learned through that truck, not everything is always what it seems. And you know what James is writing to here is he's writing to a group that he's called brothers. He's writing to a group that he's cared about. And as he's writing to them, he's asking them, test yourself, test your faith. As a brother, as someone who cares about you, test yourself because things are not always what they seem. The last thing we would want to have happen is for you to be here at Cedarville University, for you to spend four years here on campus, for you to know inside something's not quite right, and for you to walk away from Cedarville University to discover one day that you don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. So today as we walk through this, I'm walking through this as one follower of Christ, speaking to other followers of Christ to say to you, evaluate your heart. Make sure that you are truly a follower of Christ. And if you are and you know you are, doesn't mean this message is not for you. You're then evaluating your maturity level in Christ. These tests will give you a mark to say to you, am I mature in Christ? Am I doing what the Lord has called me to do? Am I walking with Christ? And so today we're going to read James chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. And if you would, would you join me in standing in honor of the reading of the Lord's word if you're able to do so. The text says this, if anyone thinks he is religious, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Dear Lord, today I pray that you would just help us to evaluate our own lives, evaluate our own hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be honest and to be convicted where we need to be convicted, to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. Lord, that we may follow you in a better way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. James has already commented in verse 19, be quick to hear, slow to speak. He ties this in. He will come back to us again in chapter 3 and talk about the tongue. And so knowing that, I won't spend the majority of my time today on the tongue. He mentions it again in 4, 11, and 12. But he does start here by saying that the first test of genuine faith is controlling the tongue. In verse 26, if anyone thinks, if you assume you're religious, if you assume that your relationship pleases God, that you are acceptable to God, but if you do not bridle your tongue, then you have deceived your heart and your religion is worthless. None of us in this room, I believe, want to have a religion that's worthless. We don't want to find out one day we didn't have the real thing, that we had a worthless faith. And so here is a test. The test is, do you bridle your tongue? James compares the tongue to a horse. How many people do we have in the audience that have ridden horses? That's a fair number. When, when you ride a horse, a horse usually weighs about 1,000 pounds. Some horses are larger. They weigh about 1,500 pounds. Some of your really large horses can go to about 2,200 pounds. Most of us don't weigh anywhere near that much. So when you are going to ride a horse, you bridle the horse. When you bridle the horse, you actually take, a, usually it's, it's leather, sometimes not leather, but you'll put it over the horse's snout. You'll put it up over the ears. 
the ears will fit through. There's a strap that will attach underneath the horse's chin, and there's a bit that will go into the horse's mouth. That bit into the horse's mouth, as you then pull on those reins, will tend to put pressure onto one side of the mouth or the other side of the mouth. And what happens is that bridle secures that to the horse's head, and it turns. Now, if you have a bit in the horse's mouth, that's effective if you're sitting on the horse's back and you're riding the horse and you're using your reins to control the horse's head. If you're not on the horse's back, the bridle that actually is over the head is actually more useful than the bit is at that moment because the tension is not on the bit in the right way and you still control the head of the horse and where the head goes, the body will follow. That's, that's for everybody. That, that works with gymnastics, that works with karate, that works with riding horses. Where the head goes, the body will follow. So here he's comparing the tongue to a horse, to an animal that has great power, to an animal that can cause great harm. And he's saying to you, genuine faith, the real deal will bridle the tongue. It will control what the tongue says. Now think about breaking a horse. There was a time when I was growing up that we, we had some buddies that got some horses out from the West and they brought in these horses and, and you had to break the horse. And when you were working on breaking a horse, it wasn't easy to get a saddle on the horse. It wasn't easy to get a bridle on the horse. The horse did not want to have something put on its head. The horse would rear its head up. If the horse was spirited enough, it would run away from you. You wouldn't be able to, to gather the horse in. You had to work hard just to get a bridle over the horse. There were some horses that were ridden frequently that you still had to work hard to get them to take the bit. You'd put the bit up to the mouth and the horse would grit its teeth as though I'm not going to let that bit go in my mouth. And you would have to work to get the horse to take the bit. A wild horse needed a bridle in order to be controlled. And when we first become believers and followers of Christ, a wild tongue, a tongue that is careless, a tongue that speaks words that hurt people, needs a bridle, the bridle of genuine faith to understand that we are to serve others, that we are to encourage others, that we are to lift others up in order for it to be used for God's glory and not to tear others down. This is the analogy. It's that wild horse needs a bridle. A horse, if you're going to ride it, the more spirited it is, the wilder the horse is. You need the bridle. You need the bit as the rider to control the horse. There's also those moments when you're riding a horse, even a good horse, a horse that you have a relationship with. And the better the relationship between the rider and the horse, the, the easier it is. As you're, as you're riding a horse, sometimes though, a horse will be spooked. Some horses are spooked by the sound of water or the sight of water. Some horses get spooked when dogs come alongside and bark. If they see a snake or something, they get spooked. If, if something happens, a sound that they're not familiar with, a car coming by, perhaps they'll get spooked. When a horse gets spooked and there's a rider on the back, if you don't have a bridle, if you don't have something to control, then that horse can react in different ways. Just like when something happens to us at times, we and our tongue, we can get angry, we can get frustrated, we can get mad, we can react in ways that when we are spooked, if we don't have a bridle to control that we'll pop off and say things that we really don't mean. We'll get in a conversation with roommates, with friends, with mom and dad, with other people, and we'll start in an argument. And all of a sudden in our mind, winning the argument is more important than the relationship. And we say things that we don't mean. We get mad at somebody. We get in intense battle or combat in sports, and we say things that we don't mean. Here, James is saying to you that when test of religion is that you bridle the tongue. It means that if we want to evaluate our Christianity, if we want to evaluate our faith, if we want to evaluate our relationship with Christ, think about the words we say. Do the words that you say, the words that come out of your mouth, and I don't mean that you never make a mistake, but do the words that come out of your mouth habitually tear people down or build people up? Do they encourage others or do they seek to destroy others? Do they seek to only exalt yourself or do they exalt Christ and exalt God?
Do the words that come out of your mouth, are they careless? Do you have no intentional thought or strategic aspects with the words that you put forward? Or are you looking as you go throughout the day to look at other people and say, how can I encourage that person? How can I come alongside them and how can I be an encouragement to them? How can I edify the church? How can I build them up? How can I say a kind word, a nice word to somebody? Can I look for something in their life that I could say to them, you know, I really appreciate the way that you're always smiling or I really appreciate the gifts God's given you, the ability to sing or or to play the drums, the ability to do things. Can you encourage people with your words or are you tearing people down? Here, this is one of the things that James says. In the news here lately, There's been a lot of talk about locker room talk. There's been defense of locker room talk where people would say things like, that's okay, every guy talks that way. And I want to say to you here today, that what James is saying is that every guy does not engage in locker room conversation. Every follower of Christ that has faith is not going to engage in a degrading conversation of sexual assault or anything of that nature that tears people down. And here on this campus, I know you are with me. But here on this campus, we want to make sure, guys, that we are men that love Christ and that love the women that God has placed in our lives and that love them with a holy love as sisters in Christ and that we encourage them and that we build them up and that we don't degrade them and that with our words and with our actions that we demonstrate that we are true followers of Christ so that one day, if the Lord allows you to be married, it will be an Ephesians 5 marriage where you are willing to lay down your life for, for your bride as Christ laid down his life for the church. Let's use our words to build up, not to tear down. Let's not engage in locker room banter. Let's not engage in thoughts that we will one day regret, that will one day destroy us. There's another application, I think, from this. Anybody anybody here a football fan? Who said that? Who said Steelers? Come on, own it. Where are you? All right, I'm up there. Okay, right up there. All right, I'm I'm a Steelers fan. It is what it is, right? I, I'm a genuine Steelers fan. I, I'm a diehard Steelers fan. But I've been convicted about my fanhood of Steelers. Not that I don't need to cheer for them, but you can ask my wife. Earlier on in our marriage, especially, when I watched Pittsburgh play, I wanted to watch the game alone. Do you know why I wanted to watch the game alone? Because I felt less convicted yelling at the refs when nobody else was around. Because the referees have never had a good game when the Steelers were playing. They are always partial to the other team. It doesn't matter if we're winning by 35 points. They're still partial to the other team, right? True fans, you know what I'm talking about here. I enjoyed, actually, I really loved. I had a Steelers room. When I I lived at home, we had this room that I had Steelers stuff all over the room. And when the Steelers would come on, everybody would leave me alone in that room. And I would watch the Steelers play. And I would yell at the TV. I thought the refs could hear me or something. I don't know. But you know what? I I began getting convicted about the fact that I really got angry if they lost the game. I really, in my words, did not represent Christ well. And so I started not yelling at the refs so much. I I still don't like it sometimes, but I I recognize the fact that even at sporting events, I had to control what I said and bridle my tongue so that I didn't lose my witness. So let me say this in a gentle way as one who has struggled with this. When we have a great game like we're going to have tonight at the volleyball game, let's cheer for our yellow jackets. Let's exalt them when they do stuff good. Let's dominate in the name of Jesus. 
But let's in our words not discourage or belittle the other team so that after the game is over, after we have beaten them, we can walk across and share the gospel with them and they'll still want to hear from us. In our basketball games, let's be the same way. Let's encourage our team. Let's cheer for our team. Let's go crazy for our team. Let's have fun. I love the energy and excitement, but let's be cautious in our words so that we don't yell at the refs in such a way that the refs go away and have a reputation and say, I don't like going to that place. They always yell at us and demean us. Let's encourage them and thank them for the job they do because it's not easy either. So let's use our words to represent ourselves in a way that would be exalting to Christ, not hurting our own gospel witness. Matthew 5, 17 says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. Ephesians 4, 29 says, let no corrupting talk come from your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. Our words provide glimpses into our heart. So if you wanna know where your heart is, if you wanna test your faith, if you wanna test your maturity, you look at some of these verses. Matthew five eighteen says, it shows your heart. You want a glimpse of your heart? It's the words that you say. Does the words that you say edify others? Does it show that you have a heart for others, that you care? Does it show that you have a corrupted heart, that you wanna say things that you shouldn't be saying? Here we also see in Matthew 12, 36 through 37, a verse that scares all of us when it says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be judged and by your words, you will be condemned. We need to be strategic. We need to be intentional. We do not need to be careless about the words that come from our mouths. We need to make sure that we bridle our tongue. There's a second point here in the text. He says, if anyone thinks his religion, he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart, the person's religion is worthless. So the first test is genuine faith will, will guard your words that you say. The second test here is that genuine faith cares for the afflicted. This is what it says. Religion that is pure, religion that is acceptable to God, religion that is undefiled before God, that religion of the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. If you want to have a religion that is pure, a religion that is undefiled, it's a religion that cares for those who are afflicted in our society. In our text, it mentions specifically widows and orphans. Perhaps in modern society, widows may not fit the context as well, although some certainly would. Sometimes you have widows in modern society that are very wealthy, they are very well off, they are very well established. Perhaps that's not exactly what the text is indicating here. In this day and time, if you had a widow with property ownership, with earning money, if you were an orphan, you had, you had no rights in society. And throughout the text of the scriptures, it gives us reminders of this. In fact, I'll give you a few of them. Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24 says this, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, what's going to happen? They're going to cry out to me and I will hear their cry, says the Lord, and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. If you mistreat the widows, the orphans, if you mistreat the fatherless child, the Lord says, I will kill you with the sword and your wives then shall become widows and your children fatherless. So what the text is indicating to us there is treat widows and orphans as you would want your wife or your children to be treated. Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22 says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands, not just with the harvest in the field, but when you beat your olive trees, don't go over them again. Don't get everything. Leave some for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. 
When you gather the grapes and from your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. The principle applies to us as well, that we were slaves in our sinfulness, and God, by his grace and mercy, gave us a gift that we did not deserve. And so we understand that giving gifts to others helps us to show the love of Christ, and so we should have a love and a care and a concern for the orphan and the widow. Psalm 146.9 says, The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. There are other verses I have listed there for you. Deuteronomy 10, 17, 24, 17, 27, 19, Psalm 68, 5, Isaiah 1, 17 and 23, Isaiah 10, 1 and 2, Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7, 22, 3, Zechariah 7, 10, and I'm sure there are more that I missed that talk about the fact that we should have care and concern for the widow, for the orphan, for those travelers, for those sojourners. We should care for those in society that are the most afflicted. Today, I think the orphan clearly applies. There are over 400,000 in American foster care alone. There are 23,700 in foster care in the state of Ohio. I looked this morning and glanced at some of the photos of the 300 plus that have photos waiting to be adopted. You look at that list and most of those are ages 13 to 17. Most of those are of sibling pairs. They are the ones that that perhaps need medical care, the most afflicted, the least likely to be adopted. Perhaps that's what James is saying to us this morning is he's saying to us, you should have concern over those orphans who are likely not to be adopted, those who are in the foster care system, perhaps those who have been abused. We should care for them and have compassion for them. We shouldn't look at them with any disdain or look at them as though they're not like us. We should look and care and have great concern for them. It's sad that in our society it costs up to $30,000 to adopt a baby, but it costs less than $1,500 to abort one. It's sad that in our society there are so many children in want of happy homes, in want of loving homes, and there are so few people willing to open their homes to them. So I challenge you students. I'm not challenging you to adopt a child today, all right? I get, I get that. But I'm challenging you to have this culture of adoption, this culture of love, that in your heart that you may decide, like the Southerners who serve in Brock, they're in the process of an adoption. And I was talking to them just the other night, and they said if they get a boy, they're going to name the, potentially name the, the boy uh, Boaz Brock. Now, how many guys do we have in Brock in the house right now? You guys excited about having a baby, adopted baby in the hall named Brock? I mean, that's pretty awesome. We have on our campus, we have three on our cabinet that have adopted. Dr. Suplee, the Geist, myself, our daughter Rachel is adopted. We have people here that have care and concern for adoption, but I want to tell you that we need to do more. The job is not finished. There are many that need homes, loving homes. So pray and think the Lord may put you together with somebody one day and have you want to adopt children. In addition to having natural born children, I encourage you to think that way. In fact, how many of you, just stand up right quick, how many of you are either adopted, have adopted somebody, or are in a family that has adopted somebody? If you are in that position in the audience, stand up. I want to see how many different adoption connections we have right here in this audience. Just look around the room at the awesome impact that you have been able to make by pouring into the lives of others. You can be seated. And I want to challenge the rest of you to begin thinking that way. I put out a, I put out a call for help. I put out a call that, that said to them, I want to know, who do you think is the most afflicted in our society? Widows obviously came up. Orphans came up. 
refugees or the immigrant, perhaps the sojourner, could best be rendered as a refugee or an immigrant these days. People who have no necessary legal standing, special needs, physically or mentally challenged. Some of you gave these answers uh, on Facebook or on Twitter or otherwise. Deaf or blind, mentally ill, elderly in nursing homes, Alzheimer's patients, children with Down syndrome, those who are heavily autistic, those who are homeless, those who are veterans, those who are drug addicted, those who are sex trafficked. When we look at people, do we look at them and think, well, if they worked as hard as I did, they wouldn't be in those situations, which is a moralistic type mentality, or do we look at them with grace in our eyes and say, if I can do something to help them, I should do something to help them, whether they deserve it or not, because God did something to help me on the cross through the grace of Jesus Christ. Here, we look around at those who may be awkward or undesirable or unattracted by society standards. We look at the HIV positive in other countries. You can go to leper colonies where people will not even touch them because of fear that they're going to get leprosy and they haven't had human contact in years. You think about the gypsies in Europe, those in Haiti after the hurricane, and I couldn't help but think about those who are the unborn children, those who have no constitutional protection. This past Sunday, Planned Parenthood celebrated its 100th birthday. They celebrated their 100th birthday of keeping millions from celebrating their first birthday. In our society, we should have compassion. We should have care for those who are afflicted. And I cannot help but think that that includes the unborn child. After conception, in the womb, the only difference is location, development, And so we should not give up on our cause for them. 1916, Margaret Sanger established the first birth control clinic. 1921, she established the first American Birth Control Conference. 1942, its name changed to Planned Parenthood. Sanger, if you study her, if you study her writings and read them, was a leading advocate for the eugenics movement, which wanted to eliminate reproduction, which wanted to sterilize people that she considered undesirables, people like immigrants, the poor, people of certain races, She was asked in an interview that you can find on the Gospel Coalition's website in 1957 if she believed in sin. Her response was, I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world. She went on to clarify that response by those who may not be able to be productive citizens of society. But I would say to you here, I would say to you now that we have to be a generation, that we have to be a people who are not afraid to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. And whether that's a refugee or whether that's the unborn or whether that's a widow or whether that's somebody with Alzheimer's that won't remember you the next day, whether that's somebody in a nursing home and many of you in social work fields, many of you in medical fields, you're going to spend your life caring for them. And we owe you a debt of gratitude for your care and concern for others. And care and concern for others is a test of genuine faith. If you don't care for those who are less fortunate than yourself, James is telling you, this is not religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Can we be a generation that will stand for those who need help, for those who need others that will come alongside them and support them? There's a third test. We bridle our tongue. We care for those who are afflicted. And then he says here, at the end of verse 27, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Genuine faith avoids worldliness. Genuine faith cultivates godliness. Genuine faith chases after holiness rather than worldliness. Now, the word world here, cosmos, can mean many different things. It can mean the created universe. It can mean 
the people, for God to love the world, the people of this world. It can also mean this current culture, the devil as the ruler of this earth and the corrupt evil systems. And that's what it means in this particular verse. We are to keep ourselves unstained from the world that surrounds us. In fact, James comes back to this and defines it himself in James 4, 4, where he says, you adulterous people. Now, notice we've talked about how often James says, brothers, 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 my beloved brothers, my dear brothers, brothers all throughout. And here in James 4, 4, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we want to be pure and undefiled before God, if we want to have a genuine faith, we need to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He said, first, there is a friendship of the world, which can lead to a love for the world. And if we are not careful, we will become conformed to the world. And the result is being condemned with the world. Now, I want to be cautious here. I don't want to preach legalism or moral therapeutic deism. James is not saying, do a checklist of things so that you will be right before God. James is saying, by the grace of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit living within you, if your life has been changed from the inside out, your heart will then desire to do things like bridle what you say, care for others, and remain unstained from the world. This is not legalism. This is loving Christ and doing as you please. This is living out your faith in a way that will glorify God. And so I say to you, be careful. Be careful what you put into your mind. Be careful with the shows that you watch, with the movies that you see, with the music that you listen to, with the places that you go, with the things that you ingest. What you ingest will affect the way you think and it will affect what comes out. So be cautious and be careful with the things that you put into your brain. I say to you as faculty and staff, be careful with the things that you put into your brains. Be careful with the movies that you watch, with the things that you say. Be careful with the things that you listen to. Be careful with everything on this campus. We should be strategic and intentional to avoid worldliness. We want to be unstained by the worldliness of this world. So as we do things like choose our plays and our books for classes and the movies that we're going to watch, as we have devotions and choose our groups, as we have alt nights, as we do everything in every corner of this campus, may we say that on this campus, we're going to stand firm for Jesus Christ. We're going to stand for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ in a way that we're not going to see how close we can come to the line to be like the world, but we're going to see how close we can come to glorifying God with all that we say, with all that we do, because we love him and he's worthy and he deserves it. Not out of legalism, not that we earn our way to anything, but because he is worth it and he first loved us in giving his life for us on the cross. Can we seek after him with that passion and that holy desire? Where are you? Genuine faith? Test yourself. Don't be deceived. Do you bridle your tongue? Do you care about the afflicted? Do you avoid worldliness? Is that where you are? You say, yeah, I'm there. What's your grade today? Test yourself. Spiritual maturity, where are you? Are you walking with Christ? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to live through you? Are you grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit in your life? As you look at your own maturity level, are you intentional with your words? Are you strategic with your words? Do you encourage others? Are you careless? Are you actively seeking to do things that care for the afflicted? Are you disengaged? Are you being careful and strategic 
about what you ingest to avoid worldliness, to pursue Christ? Are you being careless? James wants you to be a mature follower of Christ so that your faith will be a steadfast faith for trying times. That's my prayer for you as well. It's my prayer for all of us is that we will pursue God, that we will seek him with all that we are and that he'll change this world through us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, it's a hard passage today. Father, we all fail you many ways in the words that we say and our carelessness for others and the things that we do. So God, forgive us. We know we're not perfect. We know that we can't live up to the standards that you've called us to. But by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we seek to follow you and to please you and to honor you and to glorify you. So today, with the grace and mercy of the cross, knowing, Lord, it's not a works-based salvation, but it is a grace-filled salvation by faith through grace, we seek to honor you. Help us to do so. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Increase our faith so that your name will be glorified. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you are dismissed.